Hi, this is Stuart Hardy with All In Sports Outreach, and I'm so excited to share this special episode of our podcast with you. Today, you're going to hear from Coach Bill Curry, no stranger to this podcast. He was previously on episode number 17 back in December of 2017, and just given everything that's going on in our culture today, uh, we reached out and invited him back, and he graciously agreed to, to join us. Um, no stranger to sports, just incredible coaching career, playing career, um, time at ESPN as a college football analyst. But more than that, just a just an incredible man, incredible husband, incredible dad, incredible granddad, and just a vocal leader in our culture today. So without further delay, let's jump right into it. Well, thanks for joining me today, Coach Curry. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm not used to being invited back on people's productions. This is great. Just for the listeners, um, Coach Curry was episode number 17 back in December of 2017. So if you want to hear a little bit more about his background as far as uh, coaching and playing, I'd encourage you to go listen to that. But today we're going to circle back to a topic that we did talk about in 2017 is the first time we connected was after you were on um, ESPN radio in November of 2017 on Mike and Mike's final episode. You told a story Um, about traveling through the state of Alabama following September 11th and the tragedies there. So I was going to ask if you'd mind kind of setting the stage by retelling that story. Well, it was a uh, life-changing moment, uh, as it was for uh, every person in America. Every one of us can tell some kind of story that revolves around that circumstance. Most of us know where we were on September 11th, 2001. Most people, when I have you remember where you were uh, September 13th, 2011. And maybe if we've got 500 people there, maybe three people remember where they were on that Thursday. Well, I remember where I was because everything was so, so tense. And ESPN, I was at the time I was an ESPN analyst. And ESPN had wisely decided not to put any of us on airplanes that week. They changed our assignments. And uh, I lived in North Carolina. And they they, um, assigned me the Alabama versus Southern Mississippi game to be played in Birmingham that Saturday, the 15th of September, if indeed the games were to be played at all. As we drove to our assignments on that Thursday, we were told to take our cell phones and to expect a call and that uh, we'd be called and told whether or not the games were going to be played because the NCAA was meeting to decide whether or not to play the games. So that's what I was doing. I was driving from North Carolina to Birmingham and I stopped in Atala, Alabama to uh, fill up my car. And a nice guy behind the uh, counter recognized me and said, hey, coach, we're going to play these games this weekend? I said, well, I don't know. Uh, but if uh, if this phone rings that's in my hip pocket here while I'm in your station, you may be the first fan in America to find out if we're going to play or not. So sure enough, two or three minutes later, the, my phone rang, and I was told, go home. We're not going to play. A good decision. We didn't need to be putting 75,000 people in stands all over America when we didn't know what we were facing. So I walked back up to the front and I said, um, well, I got the phone call and um, 
we're not going to play. And I'll never forget the response of that gentleman. He leaned forward and his eyes bulged. His jugular stood out. He looked me uh, square in the eye and he said, well, let me tell you something, coach. Come Friday night in Atala, Alabama, we're going to play football because it mm -hmm. means a lot to us. Whoa. That wasn't what I expected. I walked out and got in my car and we were all so distraught. We'd lost 3,000 plus of our citizens to a force that we didn't even understand, which was starting something horrific that goes on to this day. And uh, I tried to turn it into a spiritual exercise. And I said, Lord, please show me what I'm supposed to learn from this. Wait, what did that guy mean? Why would it matter to play football in Atala, Alabama come Friday night? Or for that matter, College Park, Georgia, or Maslin, Ohio, or Coronado, California, or anywhere in America, why, who cares if we play this dumb game that I've given my life to in the midst of this horror that we're dealing with? And as I drove and meditated and tried to listen, uh, I got a firm message. Uh, Friday night in the United States of America, that's when we huddle. That's when we get together as a community. Uh, we sit next to people on Friday night that we wouldn't sit next to any other time of the week. Certainly not Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Mm. And I hate to have to say that, but I, I mean, all of us... Christians that grew up down here and all over America, we know we haven't done the job of pulling all our folks together. When we huddle, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your national origin is. It doesn't matter what your politics are. If we're sitting there together and we're pulling for our team and our sons are playing on that team, and somebody's kid scores a touchdown, we don't stop to see what the pigmentation is. What do we do? We hug. We cheer. We jump up and down. Yay. We score. Our team did this together. Because racism is not acceptable in the huddle. You can't be a racist and step in a football huddle anymore because mm. the guys will call you out. Even more and more young ladies are playing football. That scared me. I, I looked up the statistics. And every Friday night in America, over a million children are going to play this foolish game that we all love so much. And we're trying to change the rules to make it safer for them, and we should. But what happens in that huddle is that children that have been raised to hate each other's guts, who've been raised to look down their nose at other folks because of where they come from or what they look like or the way they talk, they learn to love each other. Because what they find out going in and out of that locker room and in and out of that huddle, <laughs> that sweat smells the same on everybody. <laughs> and in football, you can't even get your clothes on without your teammate. You can't get your jersey on. You have to have your teammate pull your jersey over your pads. You remember that from high school football. You have to have your brother to pull your, your jersey over your shoulder pads so you can just go out and practice or play. And when you come back in, you've been busted in the mouth and you're oozing a little blood. That blood's the same color as your brother's. And over time, something happens that's miraculous. And I call it the miracle of the team. Mm. The miracle of team 
those kids that thought they were supposed to hate each other, they end up loving each other and they become brothers. And in some case, brothers and sisters, and it lasts the rest of their life. And I'm 77 years old now, so I can say that with authority because a lot of my teammates have been my brothers for the rest of our lives. And we didn't know each other. We didn't like each other. We didn't look the same or anything when I first met them in a locker room. And all the teams I've been privileged to coach, they all call me now. I hear from some of them just about every day. And they are all different pigmentations and all different religions and all different parts of the world. And it's a blessing that, uh, that we have that privilege. So the football huddle is what America is supposed to be and what we ought to be and what we might be in our best dreams. And that's the only way I know to say it. That's such a powerful story. I mean, I still remember when I heard you tell the story on Mike and Mike, and then I've heard it, you know, several times since and watched the the video titled The Huddle on YouTube. And I've actually had uh, probably about six or seven people send that to me in the, in the last week and a half. And I just think to me, I say this a lot when I'm talking to um, recording podcasts like this with a lot of coaches that to me, it's just a beautiful picture of how God designed the overall church as a whole to operate, right? I mean, one purpose, like a team has, we don't get caught up in all the stuff that divides us. You know, if we just focus on two things, loving God and loving others, all the other stuff goes away. But unfortunately, we do. We look at everything else. And, you know, when you said it, that, you know, I've heard a lot of pastors say that 11 o'clock on Sunday is probably one of the most segregated hours in America. And the responsibilities on all of us. The horror of that statement and the fact that it's absolutely true is is on all of us. I think, maybe I'm biased, but I think it's mostly on white America because we haven't done the job of going out and loving our brothers uh, and sisters of color to make them feel welcome. Um, but uh, you can argue that all you want to. Whoever's fault it is, it's wrong. And we need to fix it and we need to fix it quickly. And it would seem to me that those of us that follow the master would be the logical people to be the starting place, not to divide the nation, but to select leaders who actually believe what Jesus believed, who actually treat other people the way they wish to be treated, Mm -hmm. who actually love people who hate them. Jesus said, if you love somebody that loves you, what's so extraordinary about that? (laughs) Even the tax collector does that. That's exactly what he said, honestly. Love those who hate you. Love those who abuse you, who use you, and and forgive them. And then uh, you will be doing my work. Uh, We need to listen to all of the gospel when we choose our leaders and when we look the way we look at each other, the way we police our the citizens, we need to remember those things. And I know, I know this. It's real easy to talk about, and it's real hard to do. Mm. Yeah, Curry, I hear you. Yeah, you've been talking like this all these years, and I have. Um, and I, and uh, we all should have done more, and we can, and we need to do it right now. That's good. And, you, you know, you, you mentioned you've been talking about this for years, and I came across something that a friend of mine down at Baylor who works in the Faith and Sports Institute as part of their seminary put on Twitter a week and a half ago, and he had a a clip from, I believe, 1968. And it's a little article that talks about 
um, when Dr. King was, it was killed, it quotes you saying, it really shook you to the roots of your conscience. You talked a good game, but you'd never been, got in the game. So you marched in the funeral. Um, and you, you talked about, you know, that, that the black community at that time was demanding action, you know, and if we didn't do anything, it was going to get worse. Um, that we've waited too long. Well, then fast forward to May 29th of this year, you know, you, 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 you put a tweet out there that says my generation had a chance to change much of this illogical hatred. And we whiffed ignoring chances to change old racist attitudes Though there have been progress in some areas in other ways. We're back to the sixties. No excuse. I'm partially responsible, humbled and sorry. So with that, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, just kind of talk about your experience in the sixties as it, as it relates to today. Well, that was a very pivotal time in my life when Dr. King was assassinated. We had a baby girl that was less than a year old, and she's now 52 years old. Mm. I'll get in a lot of trouble for telling that, but <laughs> she, she was an infant. And we were told by family members, don't you dare go out and walk in that march. But we did. Uh, we didn't change anybody's mind. Or we just quietly did that pay homage to Dr. King's work and that he stood for. And uh, the rest of that newspaper article you're talking about tells the fact that when we got home that night, I was nervous because I didn't know if I was going to catch it from my neighbors. And I really mm-hmm. didn't want to have to put up with that. I didn't know quite what I was going to say or how I was going to behave. But within a month's time, my life was changed again because I had a teammate with the Baltimore Colts at that time named John Mackey. John Mackey is generally recognized as the greatest tight end of all time. He's in the NFL Hall of Fame. That's his playing credentials. But he was an even better man, and he and his wife Sylvia had embraced Carolyn and me when we went to the Colts. And John had become president of the NFL Players Association. And we were trying to get started, uh, trying to get started and negotiate on behalf of players. We were not a union, did not want to be a union. And that's another long story. We Mm -hmm. became a union a few years later because we were forced into it. But John called me and shocked the daylights out of me. He said, I need you to come to New York right now. I said, well, what what am I going to do? I mean, you're talking about being nervous. He was getting ready to meet with the executive committee, Alan Page, Kermit Alexander, Tom Keating, a bunch of NFL stars that were representing us to the owners. And they were, John was there to try to negotiate an improvement in the pension plan and hopefully some adjustment in what was called the Roselle Rule. And it's a long story. I won't get into it here. But he said, I need you to come to New York and guard my backside. Wow. I had to get on that airplane. And I sat in the room. If there had been any danger, if there had been anybody that was betraying John somehow, my job was to know that and to be his security guy. And that was one of the great honors of my life. So I had time to spend with those powerful. They weren't just great all-pro football players. They were brilliant human beings that had lived the life of an, a black man in America. 
And so I got a chance to pick their brains at dinner and uh, laying awake at night, just asking questions about what's it like. And then when I had a chance to start coaching, well, first, the next thing that happened is John decided I was going to be the next president, which I did not want to do, but that happened too. And um, so I learned a lot about um, political leadership. And what I decided is I'd never run for office ever again <laughs> in my life um, because there are compromises that I do there. You just can't compromise certain things. And to get elected, uh, you almost have to, I'm afraid. But that was another life-changing experience for me to understand that even these great and powerful guys that were at the top of the world in their profession, and they were going to be remembered forever in the Hall of Fame, even they had suffered at the hands of our society. And so I tried to teach that to each of my teams as we came along. We had police come and talk to our players. I hope we made an impression that kept uh, kept our lives safer, um, but I'm not sure. I just feel like that my generation had a chance for legislation and activity with the police departments that we could have changed a whole lot more than we did, and we just didn't do it. Hmm. That's what I meant by those remarks. Absolutely. So in hindsight, um, is there, you know, what would you do, if anything, different to make a difference back in those times? Well, I would spend a lot more time um, with uh, city governments. Gosh, I even got a great education when I was coaching at Georgia Tech. Andrew Young became our mayor and he became my mentor and mentored me virtually every day that I was the head coach at Georgia Tech. He helped us recruit. When I screw up, he'd look me in the eye and tell me, hey, you screwed up. And he'd come to our practices and um, I would stop practice and he would look everybody in the eye and say, you guys going to class? You're behaving yourself. You're not out in the streets causing trouble. I would have spent more time, if I had it to do over, I would have spent more time getting people like him to get me into the police department so I could understand what their dynamics are. They got the toughest job in the world. I know most of them are great guys because I spent a lot of time having them come to our teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know that um, like every, they're not perfect like everybody else and they make terrible mistakes. And what we saw last week and what we've seen in sequence the last couple of years is the worst run of abuses that I've ever seen. Maybe I just hadn't been watching enough. I would have spent more time doing that and more time encouraging my guys to be police officers. I got a bunch of guys that were police officers and state troopers. Uh, and I've talked with them at length about what needs to be done, but there, there are no magic bullets and uh, you can't go back. So to be an old guy shooting my mouth off now is uh, <laughs> probably not the healthiest thing in the world, but I'm trying to, I'm just trying to confess that that's that's my experience, and I hope young coaches will realize that they have a powerful impact in the community, and that they can go and deal and get the the guys that I mean the police officers by and large love the sports and they love the youngsters, and a lot of them are the police officers youngsters, and uh, there can be a lot of cooperation, and I think real progress can be made. A lot of people right now, as we sit here in June of 2020, and you know you turn on the TV, look at your computer, 
doesn't matter. I mean, it's just a lot of people are just struggling with wanting to do something, um, feeling kind of helpless in this situation. So what advice would you offer somebody that's listening that just wants to be a part of the solution but has no clue what to do? Well, if you're a teacher or a coach or a minister, reach out to your people. Mm. Remind them of what we were taught by the master. He wasn't, he didn't mince words. He told us exactly what to do. Love those who hate you. Go love them and see what happens. If you really believe in what you say you are, if you really are what you say you are, then you will do that. And um, that's, again, that's easy to talk about and hard to do. But you got young people, again, if you're a teacher or a coach, you got young people that are counting on you. Now, I know in the public school system, you can't go preaching a religion, but you can preach behavior Mm. and you can preach. This is what you're going to do if you're going to be a part of our team. And when you get in a fist fight on the field, you stop the fist fight and you have the two guys meet in your office and you talk about it. What what happened? How did we get all upset here? And more times than not, they end up hugging each other and becoming better friends than they thought they could be. That kind of thing. Coaches and teachers have are the most important people in our culture today, along with the police officers. And um, we can all make a difference. Absolutely. You know, a lot of our listeners are high school coaches, um, college coaches, but a lot of a lot are high school coaches. And I know many, um, as we're recording this, are just getting back, seeing their teams for the first time and in person, the first time in three months because of the, the pandemic. And they're walking into a time where there's a, you know, should be a lot of excitement to get back to work, working on um, football, basketball, whatever the sport may be. But there's this heavy cloud as players and parents wait to see what their coach is going to say as it relates to the race issue. So what would you tell a coach that they should, how should they talk to this important issue of race with their team? Because many people say, Hey, you're a football coach, stick to football, but this is an issue that, you know, impacts a team. So how would you encourage them to maybe get out of their comfort zone and talk to their team about it? Vince Lombardi and Don Shula had a lot of strong points. Lombardi talked about it some. Shula talked about it very little. But neither one of them would tolerate racism. I never saw an incident of racism from either one of them. Lombardi had experienced racism or or prejudice because of his Italian name. It had people tell him, I mean, people in high places, you'll never be a head coach, Lombardi, because you're one of those Italians. And they said, derogatory things about Italians. He never forgot that. So he he didn't tolerate, if you were prejudiced and you said racist words in our training camp, you were gone. You weren't going to be on the team. Other teams had quotas, racist quotas. They either had no African-American players or they'd have one or two and they bragged about it. And we whipped them all every Sunday. Nobody could beat us. And, uh, Coach Lombardi had 10 African-American players on a 40-man roster. When he got to Green Bay in 1959, they had one. Mm. By the time I got there in 65, he had 10. But he didn't care what color your skin was. He cared a lot if you could play football. And if you tell that to your team, I don't care what color you are. I don't care what side of town you live on. I don't care where you go to church. I care about you. I love you. I want you to succeed. I want you to play. 
And when you come out here and show me you can play, you're going to get in the game. You're going to be one of our starters. And so when you live up to those words and the guys, and, and, and then I think the second thing to do, I try to do this every year, but I would do it better and I would do it immediately. And that is I'd take the time and it's going to take a lot of time in some cases, sit down with every single player and listen to him. Mm. Don't talk to him. Listen to him. If you've got females that work in your organization that help in the equipment room or the training room, listen to them. What's their experience like? How do people talk to them? Have you been accosted while in the streets by a, a white person or by a police officer? Tell me something that, that maybe I should know about you that shaped your thinking. And you'd be amazed at how often you can make a difference in a child's life if you know them. But if you don't know them, then you're not going to understand what's going on. And, um, and you're not going to understand the forces that work on them every day. Uh, I know that coaches and teachers are now alert for the ones that don't have enough to eat. You know, they come to school hungry. I know, I know that a lot of schools are the only source of nutrition that some students have. And so I think probably the schools are doing a better job of that. But that's another thing. Be sure that the basics are being met for your kids. And um, again, this has been such a brutal time for every segment of our society, but especially for people that uh, – don't make a lot of money. Mm. You said two things there that really stuck out. You said, you know, let them know you love them, that a coach loves them, you know, and, and just show that. And I think saying that over and over is important. But the most powerful thing you said, and I think it's something we all struggle with at times, is to sit down and listen. Um, a lot of times I tell my kids all the time, listen with your ears, not your mouth. Cause a lot of times, you know, we, even as adults, we listen to, so we can respond, not understand. And I think that's just powerful. Um, especially as a coach, if you sit down with your player and want to hear their story and instead of just telling them what to do and, you know, just barking out, you know, the routine and the schedule and the X's and O's, but actually just listen to the, listen to their story. I think we could, as a culture could change this culture if we all did that. That's very powerful. The first person it will, the first person it will change is you, the coach. Mm-hmm. I used to brag about the fact, well, we're together here. I love you guys. And I was saying it probably like, you know, some coaches don't love their guys. I love you guys. And even though you're ugly and you misbehave and you cut class sometime, we try to make have fun with it sometime. But it was a big deal to me, and they knew that. And then I would have each one come to my office at mm. least once a year so that I could listen to him. And I had this, I had a very powerful experience with one of my linebackers one year. He was a very special young man. Wasn't a great player. He was a good backup linebacker, uh, toughest nails, brilliant student, engineering student, very physically attractive. Uh, I just knew he was going to come in and say a lot of nice things about the coach. Mm-hmm. And I, I really looked forward to seeing him. He sat down and we smiled and we greeted each other. And I said, well, um, Mike, um, what have you noticed recently? And then he nailed me. I, I knew I was in trouble. He said, you want the truth, coach? 
I said, well, of course I want the truth. He said, well, I'm going to tell you the truth. You talk about family and how you love us all the time. You really do. And yet when you come in to breakfast, there'll be a whole table of us sitting over there on one side. But you'll go get your tray and you'll get your food and you'll go all the way on the other side of the lunchroom and sit down by yourself and eat your breakfast. That is not family, Coach. Mm. You are not what you've been telling us you are. I almost fell out of my chair because he was exactly right. I thought, well, that's my one time a day when I could kind of get myself together and get ready for the day. And I excused myself, not thinking for an instant. I didn't think they would care if I didn't sit down and eat a bacon and eggs with them. But they do. Mm. They notice how you treat them all the time. And I have never forgotten that lesson. I tried to remember it with my children and all with everybody else's children that we were trying to raise and all the programs that we coach. But um, if you ask them for the truth, there there are a bunch of them that are going to tell you the truth and you need to be ready for it. That's powerful. That story. I mean, that just doesn't apply to to coaches, just all of us. If we say one thing, we say that we love everybody, that we love like Jesus loves, but we avoid certain people. You know, we're not, our actions aren't matching up. That, that's, a, that's a great reminder. I wrote that down. I wrote the Coach Curry breakfast story as a reminder. That's, that's a good one. And he was one of the guys that I love to see. Now think about this. Think about that kid that you really kind of hope he doesn't come to school today because you, you really don't want to see him. It's not fun to see him. He's going to mm-hmm. cause some kind of disturbance or he's a little smart aleck or maybe his clothes are a little tattered or dirty, and you don't want to admit that it really does affect you, but it does, and you don't really much like him, and he said a couple of smart things uh, in the team meetings, and you've had to call him down. Um, Well, I was one of those. When I was growing up, I was one of those. If I had people ask me, do you have any regrets looking back on your career? Yeah, I got got some big-time regrets. One of them is... I'd give anything if I had done a better job with those unlikable guys, Mm. those guys that, God, they just find a way to upset you, make you angry. And all those phrases that us coaches use, and oh, by the way, those terrible nicknames we give guys like that, the things we call them in staff meetings, oh, he ain't nothing but a, you know what, get rid of, drop all that. Lose, lose the pejorative names because it comes back to them. Uh, they get it that you, that you don't like them, that you're down on them. And having been one of those, I, I remember now how it affected me, but I didn't remember it enough when I was coaching to go find that guy every day and find some way to put my arm around him and say, hey, did you make it through that calculus class? Okay. And let him and have him know, hey, coach knows my schedule. Wow. He must care about me. I wish I had done better at that. Mm. That's good. That's very good. I like that. I've got a page full of notes here already. So I was uh, texting with a, a friend last week about, about this interview, and he, he sent me a question. He's a, he's a big follower of yours, and he said that uh, you post a lot of books that you read. So he, he encouraged me to ask, you know, is there – 
What have you read that shaped the way you see the world as it relates to the race issue? There's a book uh, written by um, Viktor Frankl, F-R-A-N-K-L, called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who was imprisoned at Auschwitz for six years. He was operated on without use of antiseptic uh, anesthesia Oof. by the uh, Nazi experimenters. And he came out of that nightmare and wrote this incredible book and formed a type of um, psychotherapy that he called logotherapy. Logos from the Greek for meaning, meaning therapy, man's search for meaning. And when you find your meaning, you can deal with virtually anything that you face. Mm. He said there was a moment during that horrific time that I was being experimented on that I realized that I had learned a kind of freedom that my captors would never understand. And that that freedom is something that I could share the rest of my life, which is exactly what he did. Anyhow, I read his book in the mid-60s, and I never forgot it. I've probably read it five times. Mm. Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, probably in the worst circumstances uh, in in history. And then um, it's not a book. (laughs) It's really a speech. And at one of the darkest times in my life, and this was an experience kind of like the Atala, Alabama experience. And who knows how God works on us, but he does. I was sitting down to trying to do a better job of having a devotional time every morning. I knew that that would give me stability if I could make myself do it. So after a couple of months, I got to where I was regular and I would open up the Bible and I, I began to get a message Um Read the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 16. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. And so I began to read that. And um, the next day I'd get a message, we'll read it again. And I would fight and I would say, no, I want to read something else. I'm not, I'm not going to read it again. And it was almost as if there was a voice I'm not saying that I had visions and that it was magical. No, it was a consistent desire to read those powerful words. Maybe the greatest speech ever delivered. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. And in time, that became so important to me. It became riveted, and I memorized it almost involuntarily. And so the next time I stood up to speak, I found myself prompted to quote those words that were issued by an obscure carpenter on the side of a hill in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And the response was incredible. And so I've probably done that 500 times since then. This, This was years ago. So the answer is scripture, but not just pick up the Bible and read so you can say, gee, I read my Bible today, although there's nothing wrong with that. If you open your heart, you might be directed to read a particular passage that might be especially powerful to you. And I could name several other 
passages that something similar happened to, but the mm-hmm. Beatitudes uh, are a way to shape your own, take charge of your own life. If you live through the principles of the Beatitudes, you will make a big difference in the lives of others. You will notice, although that's not the reason that you do it. There's a great book about Vince Lombardi called When Pride Still Matter by David Marinus. Uh, Vince Lombardi and I had a very complicated relationship. Uh, I just didn't like him at all. White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Southern males love to talk about how we are not judgmental. And in fact, we're the most judgmental bunch of people in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And I decided I didn't like him because he was a Yankee and he was a Catholic and he was Italian and he, he was from way up north. He talked funny, talked like this here. And uh, I just didn't like any of that. And um, I learned so powerfully uh, just how wrong I was. And um, people are so fascinated by him that it's worth getting that Marinus book and, uh, and reading about. He just did a phenomenal job of writing about Coach Lombardi. And I'm leaving out some things that I'll think of as soon as we hang up. I'll I'll think of other books that that I would like to recommend. That's okay. I think, honestly, um, what you said about the Beatitudes is incredible. Um, I wrote wrote myself a note to, you know, for the next week to read those every morning. I, I do, I'm in a group where we're going through book of Galatians right now with a large group of coaches, just kind of chapter a day. You know, I pulled out my Bible as you were talking about the Beatitudes and um, it's something I'm very familiar with growing up in church, but you know, now is a time when, you know, like you said, you, you memorize that maybe not on purpose and you've quoted it 500 plus times since that, you know, it can take charge of our life. And, you know, and, and and Jesus said that if we, uh, people will know we're his disciples by how we love one another. And I just think that's an outflow of spending time in the Bible, but especially understanding what he said in, in the Beatitudes. I wrote myself a note for the next week just to read it every day. Uh, I, that was good. I think that's well, especially for coaches. Yeah, the words will change your life. I mean, it's our marching orders. Mm-hmm. And in, in Galatians, you're, you're going to find the uh, fruits of the Spirit. This is what a Christian is supposed to be. Love, joy, peace, patience, <laughs> kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are no laws against such as these. That's right. There's some words in there that are difficult at times. Patience, sure kindness. Sure they are. They're, they're, you it's know. easy to talk about and hard to do. And football coaches are the best at raving about what, what everybody ought to do and, mm. and not looking in the mirror very much. But... Um, if you if you tend to these things, you'll be glad you did. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being willing to um, come back on again and just kind of talk through the race issue again. I know it's something that you um, speak loudly about, and it's something I respect personally about you. As I've tried to deal with a, a heavy heart over the last couple of weeks and unpack it in my own life, and um, just following you has been an encouragement. Knowing how you stood in the '60s and today does encourage me to take a stand, a more bold stand. But even just the comment about the Beatitudes and, and also just being willing to sit down and listen to people is um, sounds simple but um, so powerful. So I, I do really, really appreciate it. Well, it's incredible what you learn. 
Oh, oh, another great book that I should have uh, mentioned is Homer Rice's book, um, uh, Leadership for Leaders. I don't know if it's in print. If you have trouble finding it, let me know, and I'll, I can get them for you. He he was the athletic director when I became a head coach, and his whole, whole all his work, which he called the attitude technique, approach to deal with every aspect of a young person's life to insist on a systematic approach to a person's faith, person's family, person's academic goals, a person's long-term goals, short-term, intermediate, all of those are delineated in this book. It, uh, the uh, program he instituted at Georgia Tech really transformed that whole campus. And, and uh, the academic athletic mix in college sports was changed as the NCAA adopted it. Uh, he, the overall umbrella for it is something that's what he called the total person program. And when he implemented it, he handed, he had three young coaches. We had a basketball coach named Bobby Kremens and a baseball coach named Jim Morris. And, uh, and I was the football coach. He handed us a book and he said, you're going to teach this to your team. So we all said, okay. So like three weeks later, he calls me in. He says, well, how are you doing teaching the total person program to your team? I said, well, I'll get around to it. You know, right? We're working on two-minute drill and goal line and short yardage and all these other things we have to do. He said, no, no, you didn't understand. I didn't tell you to get around to it. I said, you're going to teach it to your team. In mm -hmm. fact, since you need a little encouragement, this Thursday at 11 o'clock in the morning, we're going to be in the team meeting room with the, every, the entire football team and me. And I'll be on the front row and you are going to teach the total person <laughs> program. Do you understand? I said, I believe I got it, coach. I can still quote it verbatim. <laughs> I'm 77 <laughs> years old. That was 30. It was 40 years ago. I can still quote it word for word. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you got to have a you got to have a, um, a plan for your program, whatever your plan is. Maybe it's the same as Dr. Rice. Maybe it's not. But whatever it is, if it's good and it's orderly and it makes sense, you can uh, you can teach it, and the young and the children will remember the rest of their life. I'm going to look that up. Leadership for leaders. Yeah, um, and the to there, he's written several iterations of the book: the Total Person Program, Leadership for Leaders, Leadership Fitness. Very he's 93, and he still teaches leadership. At Georgia Tech, every fall he teaches a leadership class. It's a five-hour class for seniors, and uh, they fight to get in it. Wow! What an encouragement! That's that's incredible. It is. Yeah, to still be, uh, I mean, healthy at ninety-three, and then to still be teaching. That's that's amazing. Still makes me come over there and teach it too. <laughs> Eleven <laughs> o'clock on Thursdays. Yeah, he's, he's still doing that. That's great. Hey, that keeps you fresh and keeps your keep keeps you uh, keeps you sharp and keeps you alive. Keeps you alert. It does it does? Well, I appreciate your time, and I know well, those you're welcome. That are listening or have have been encouraged as well. Well, it's an encouragement to seriously I, I tease you about having me back on. But thank you, Stuart, and you, what you're doing is a wonderful thing. And this is this right now. I'm talking about the next few weeks are going to be among the pivotal. 
uh, moments in our nation. And I believe what coaches and teachers do with our children um, is going to be very, very influential in what this country becomes. Amen, for sure. Well, thank you again to Coach Curry for taking time to to be on again a second time. Um, again, the first episode we, we recorded with Coach Curry was December of 2017, episode number 17. Um, I do encourage you to go back and listen to that, to hear more about his overall story. But I, I wanted to invite him on this time to talk specifically about what's going on today in our culture. And, and I, I have been truly encouraged by listening to Coach Curry, and I hope you have as well. Um, I, I've got probably a page and a half of notes, um, but I can sum it up in, in just a couple of things. It's just to love like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love others as yourself, and love others Jesus, just as Jesus has loved you and me. That's a sacrificial love, and that's the takeaway from all of this. And it's also spending time in God's Word. We want to make a difference in our culture. It starts with us and our hearts. He talked about you know, sitting down with his Bible almost as just to, to check it off for the day, but then he, he really sincerely prayed that God would show him something, and it went to the Beatitudes over and over, and it led to memorizing it and memorizing more Scripture and that is so important. And so many times I know I am guilty of sitting down and reading my Bible and putting the check mark and going, okay, I read my Bible today. But really what, I, what we need to be doing is going before the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, through His Word and allowing His Word to penetrate our hearts. That's how we're going to change the culture because it's through that overflow of, of our love for God that we will then be able to love others just as Jesus has loved us. So that's my takeaway. I hope it encouraged you. Share it with somebody you believe needs some encouragement today because Coach Curry is it's, it's one, of the, one of the strongest leaders that I know, one of the strongest leaders today, and is still at 77 years old speaking up and speaking out for truth and what's right. So thank you again to Coach Curry. Thank you for listening. We love to hear from you. You can do that through our website, www.allinsportsoutreach.org, or through our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In the search bar, you can type in All In Sports Outreach, and it'll take you to, to our pages. And there you can find out who we are, why we do what we do, opportunities to pray, serve, give. Thank you again for listening. I know you've been encouraged. I know I am encouraged. I'm going to listen to this episode a couple more times because I know there's stuff I didn't catch the first time. So I would encourage you to do the same. Thank you so much for your support, your prayers, and your encouragement.